Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Sebastian F. Winter, MD and PhD, Head of Policy and Research at the International Bureau of Epilepsy, Co-Founder and Chief Medical and Scientific Officer at Resolute, an affiliate researcher at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. So welcome, Sebastian. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate this kind invitation and the opportunity to be on your podcast. Well, I'm very excited to have you here, as you know, partly because of your research, which is fascinating, and partly because this is actually the second member of the Winter family <laughs> we've had on this podcast <laughs> So, you know, so we've had Helen talking about Resolute before and you're going to talk about a different angle and also some of the fantastic research you've been doing. Thank you so much. And I think it's wonderful also that you had Helen on and I truly appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak a little bit more about Resolute and the work we've done there and to talk about some of the other research I've been doing over the past couple of years. Super. So speaking of your research then, because when you look at your profile, I can see you've written about spinal surgery, about cancers, about human dignity, about brain tissue necrosis, which is something I really wanted to be able to say. So what actually is your specialty or your area of interest? That's actually a, a very a good question and a, a good summary of the research uh, portfolio I've been trying to establish over the past years. So I think it's it's really telling perhaps that, you know, I'm, I found it difficult to put my uh, foot onto a specific thing, onto a specific area, but I've been very interested in exploring various areas. And I started out actually with uh, doing neuroscience. So I have an undergraduate degree in neuroscience and through that got interested more and more in, in, into the clinical elements of neuroscience and what relevance that has in society. So I then ventured into medical school, and this is where I was, of course, very passionate about all things brain-related, especially in neurosurgery and neurology. So I had the chance actually to go abroad and do some fantastic internships with some of the leaders in the field. Uh, so I've been to uh, Toronto, uh, San Diego, uh, but also just other, other areas, including uh, South Africa and Japan. And that really sparked an interest in, you know, different healthcare systems and different approaches that we take to solving neurologic disease and brain conditions. Basically, you sound like the Percy Fawcett of medicine, right? Because, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> National Geographic Explorer back in the day, and I feel like you're doing the modern version of that. So oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And on this journey through medical school, I've been very fortunate to also reach out to some of the more uh, systemic issues and get in touch with that. So I did a couple of, of internships at WHO and UNESCO, and that really sparked my interest in the, the systemic factors, right? Uh, because it's, of course, one thing to, to see patients in the hospital, and it's extremely gratifying to do that because you have this immediate feedback that you're adding value. But I also quickly realized that you're in this big machinery and that there's of course, other factors that are influencing health at a population level, and that it's actually quite important that we look at those for society and that there's a lot of great individuals out there doing exactly that, whether it's, you know, health policy or public policy or systems approaches to neuroscience. And that really, I think, it then took off when I co-founded Resolute with my sister, Helen, that I realized the importance of actually kind of trying to translate medical knowledge into solving societal issues. And I was 
very inspired actually by this, this great physician who was actually at Charité Medical University, which was my medical school, my alma mater. His name is Rudolf Virchow, and he was actually known for founding cellular pathology, what I don't think a lot of people know as the founder of social medicine. And he had this famous quote saying that medicine is a social science and politics is nothing else but medicine at a larger scale. And when I heard that as a student, I thought it was fantastic because it's really tapping into this element that with medicine, because we're so close to humans, right? And we're trying to ameliorate suffering. It's essentially what we do, even if, you know, situations do not necessarily allow for a good outcome. You're always trying to do no harm and to prevent suffering. And ultimately as societies on a societal level, particularly, of course, in, in democratic nations, this is what we're striving to do collectively. And I thought that, you know, that really stuck with me and seeing that in, in action, doing something on the ground, I think was very in instrumental for subsequently venturing into these other fields that you mentioned. And of course, that's, it's a little bit all over the shop, ranging from brain tissue necrosis to, you know, global health. But I hope that in some ways, some of these things can, can add value down the line. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were talking about medicine as a social science, I found that really interesting. And I'm not sure how popular that view is amongst the medical community as well, because, I mean, what it made me really reflect upon is how um, medicine and how we view different people's bodies actually really influences society, right? Because, I mean, we hear about women's bodies not being researched in the same way or only from a fertility and reproduction standpoint. We hear about black bodies and, you know, bodies of color sort of not actually having the same kind of diagnoses for skin conditions or other conditions as well, or interpretations of pain. And so it's, it becomes really obvious at that point, I suppose, that medicine is social and the way we view the world affects how we view the body and the way we view the body affects how we view the world. So really interesting intervention. That's absolutely uh, true and a, a very important point. And I think also the medical field, as you say, has a lot to learn, right? I mean, if we're looking, for instance, the, the effects of sex and gender and how different conditions uh, manifest themselves so differently between men and women and also, you know, across different ethnicities, that's mm -hmm. something where medicine has to play a lot of catch up, right? If you think about, for instance, clinical trials being run in the majority of cases, vast majority of cases in, in males, right? And then we're giving the same treatment and doses to females, right? And so I think there's a lot of a lot of impetus to change that, obviously, and rightfully so. So there's, I think, a tremendous amount of catch-up to be played, to be made in this field. And this also, of course, pertains to the brain. So there's a, a big a movement and institution, the Women's Brain Project, who are doing exactly that, right? We're looking at differences in a brain structure, function, manifestation of diseases between men and women. And of course, there is so much that we don't know yet, but so much how we can truly enrich the field. And it all ultimately boils down to personalized medicine, right? So, so also on this micro scale, how can we best serve each individual person with their own specific elements and in the sense of, you know, brain function, behavioral attributes, right? That's ultimately where we want to get at. But of course, that's definitely a long road ahead. But yeah, very important also for the medical field to take note and to prioritize those areas you mentioned. Let's talk then a bit about this work you've done with Helena and with Resolute, because you've mentioned it a little bit already. 
And I saw as well that you wrote this paper together, I think with Helena's first author, so I'm not going to steal her credit, about psychosocial peer mediation as a sustainable method for conflict prevention and management amongst refugee communities in Germany. And can I guess that your contribution to that paper will have been something to do with medicine or stress or trauma, perhaps? That's exactly right. So I'm a very a big proponent of, of evidence-based policies. And when we co-founded Resolute, you know, we were doing all of these activities and workshops. And I was always thinking, okay, are we actually adding value? And uh, is this making a difference? And clearly the answer was yes. And we could see that. But kind of being a geeky scientist and coming from that angle, I was very keen for us to actually take a step back and say, okay, let's analyze what we've done over the past couple of years. And, and Helen thought it was a fantastic idea to do that and kind of go back and identify, okay, what are actually the key elements that is making this work successful and what are kind of the barriers and challenges that we need to overcome? And how can we kind of nicely package that also into a paper that adds value to the field? And that can potentially serve as, you know, maybe not a blueprint, but a first attempt for others to look at this work and see how they can apply that in their own unique settings, right? Because, I mean, Germany is not the only country where, of course, there's, you know, migration and consequences from the, I don't like this term, refugee crisis, but it, it is, of course, it was a humanitarian crisis in 2015, 2016, and we took the bulk of, of refugees coming to Europe. But of course, we also have a migratory in other, in other countries, right? And so if you're thinking about, for instance, the US and, and the migratory conflict there, right? So there's, I think, a lot of scope for some of these concepts, which we'll hopefully dig in a minute to, to be applied elsewhere. And I think that was the rationale behind this paper and to also have Resolute be not just a project on the ground, but also to kind of showcase that work and create a little bit of a think tank to, to push the field. So this was our humble attempt at doing that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it sounds really interesting. But just to take a step back for a moment, so how did this study actually work? Because I understand that Resolute, of course, helps with peer mediation training amongst refugees in refugee mm -hmm. camps and other similar circumstances, particularly in Germany. And so, I mean, how did you actually do this study or how did you actually see results from this peer mediation training over time? Um, so essentially the way it works, uh, just going back a little bit, is that we saw a definite need when, you know, this migratory crisis happened in 2015-2016 that, of course, it presented huge challenges and not just integration into German society, but also the, and this is where kind of the medical elements come in, the, the psychosocial sequela of of a conflict, right? And of escaping conflict. And it's some in the field have described this as kind of this a triple hit theory of trauma, where mm -hmm. you know you're fleeing a conflict and violence in your home country. A lot of these people have lost family members, they've been prosecuted, they've lost their homes, they've lost their economic existence, and they're being forced out of their country on then another life-threatening and existential journey that oftentimes can also result in death and despair and loss of life, to then come into a host country, which is initially, I mean, yes, it is a host country, but it is also a hostile environment for many that come there, right? And of course, you're trying to do the best on a, from a humanitarian standpoint to address immediate needs. But once these immediate needs, and that's usually kind of physical and first psychosocial support are 
address, then the second step is, okay, what do you do now, right? And so a lot of the refugees and people who have fled from Syria and, and Iraq and other places, they have been in these shelters for many years, right? Some of them have been there for, I don't know, five, five years or more. And the question is, okay, what happens now? And it's very difficult, of course, to establish a new identity in a new country, right? There are all of these democratic hurdles and barriers. And it's definitely one of, I think, one of the most complex problems to solve. So I don't want to kind of criticize the government there on, on these efforts. And I think a lot of people in, heights, in hindsight have actually also congratulated Merkel on making that decision, that humanitarian decision to say, okay, we're going to open our doors. And I think it has enriched the country in many ways. But of course, there are problems that come with this that you need to address, right? And I'm just talking about the figures here. So we have an incidence of 50% in many cases of post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Based on this triple hip theory of trauma that I explained. And this, of course, leads to tremendous challenges, including conflicts, which we, which is the focus of your podcast, right? And conflicts in society and issues with integration and mental health. And so uh, coming from that perspective, I tried to build a curriculum with Helen, who is, of course, and you've uh, interviewed her, a trained mediator and lawyer, who is a, a little bit bringing this conflict, uh, this concept of peer mediation to Germany, because this is quite active, as you know, in the US and it's carried out in schools, for instance, but it's not so well known in Germany yet. And we saw this, or rather Helen saw this, this possibility here to really add value and establish peer mediation mechanisms in shelters, which basically means that a neutral a third party among the community of refugees mitigates and solves and prevents conflicts and serves as a first contact point. But then actually piggybacking on that, it makes sense to to foster a brain health and, and mental health literacy with these peer mediators and actually form psychosocial peer mediators, educate psychosocial peer mediators who can also serve as this first contact point when somebody notices that they're struggling with their mental health and when there are clearly issues that can be adequately addressed and dealt with, right? And again, this goes back to doing awareness and doing advocacy work because a lot of people, a lot of individuals, and that goes for all societies and, of course, also Western societies where mental health is still a big taboo, right? And you would think that this will change, and hopefully it will, but it still hasn't, right? It's to generate that first level of awareness to say, well, this is a biological response to chronic stress and peak stress and trauma levels, which is manifesting in so many ways. You know, some people would say, well, I've been having chronic back pain for, I don't know, two years, and it started when I was coming to Germany. And, it, it, you know, they've gone to physicians, and of course, nothing is in necessarily wrong with their back, but it's a psychosomatic manifestation of that trauma, right? It's just one example. And so so creating that first step of awareness is, a, is an absolute game changer. And when we saw that, giving these workshops, we saw that is really the, where the value lies. Now, to come back to your actual question is how was the study uh, carried out? So we did quite a few uh, workshops across Berlin, uh, Brandenburg, uh, Hannover, so several counties within uh, Germany. And we tried to evaluate and distill best practices and challenges and opportunity. And this was really a thing that we kind of did on the go. It took us years to refine this curriculum, right? Initially, we were, and you've discussed this with Helen, very naive, you know, just going to the local language shelters and language cafes and talking to, to refugees and to German volunteers who were teaching them German and asking, hey, do you think this program makes any sense? Can you see value of this program? And then once we were going into refugee shelters, 
we very quickly realized that our approach, which was kind of my very academic approach, doing like a top-down presentation on what brain health is and what chronic stress is, that's never going to work, right? That's the complete wrong approach. And so we flipped that concept 180 degrees to a bottom-up approach. And Helen was very instrumental to that, to completely create a curriculum that is very interactive, highly a dialogue and role-play based and essentially a learning by doing experience. And that really, I think for us, were some key learnings that we try to distill in that paper. Another key learning, I think, in addition to, to these interactive role plays and fostering a dialogue was to foster intercultural dialogue. So not just doing these workshops with, with uh, refugees and homogenous group, but actually uh, inviting German locals, inviting local neighbors to these workshops. And it was just fantastic. It was fantastic to see what happened then, because all of these issues of friction and all of these conflict points were being discussed, but in a controlled format. So, so and that really helped to break down barriers and stereotypes, because I think one of the main reasons for stereotypes and preconceived notions and barriers to occur is that there is a lack of dialogue. Right. But if you actually facilitate this dialogue, you create this platform, some magical things can happen on both sides. And so how actually is it that you create this platform as you've described it? We realized that the instrument to, to really do that, the initial instrument is, of course, building trust because you cannot just force people and bring them in a room and then say, OK, now talk about why. I don't know, some German people on a train will not sit next to the person wearing a, a kneecap or a hijab, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot, I mean, that's not going to work. You need to build this initial trust to be able to discuss culturally sensitive issues. And so we created this uh, tool that we call the story sharing forum, which is this initial way for us to stimulate dialogue and to have refugee participants share their story. And the good thing is this kind of creates ownership for them because they can decide which elements of the story they want to share. Sometimes they decide to share this also through art. So we would have art sessions where, you know, people would draw their story and it's a lot easier because then you can kind of just narrate what you have drawn and it's not, it's, you know, takes it away, takes the attention a little bit away from your individual state of mind. So there, there are a lot of elements that we try to distill. And the final one I think I should highlight is having refugees as co-trainers and mm -hmm. having refugees within Resolute, because mm -hmm. I can never go as a person who has not experienced uh, this uh, trauma and this uh, journey and the experience of fleeing your home country. Fortunately, I never had to experience this, so I cannot relate. I can relate on different levels, but I cannot relate on that level. And I think in order for this to be a success and in order to create role plays and to create a curriculum that truly adds value, it needs to be a realistic curriculum. And in order to build trust, you also need to have peers from that same group. And so actually, when, you, when you're looking at Resolute, I think something like 50% of our volunteers and our staff members are refugees or have a refugee or a migration background. And I think that was truly instrumental for us to build that trust and for Resolute to be able to scale into various regions. And then ultimately for us to conduct this evaluation, also conduct the paper. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating and kudos to you and the whole team on this adaptive process, it sounds like in the end. So, I mean, that must've taken a lot, you know, cause you, you go in there, you're like, oh, we'll teach them this. And then suddenly you're going, nothing is working. And that's very hard to deal with. And so I just want to circle back for a moment because you mentioned this idea of a psychosocial peer mediator. And so I'm just kind of hoping you can clarify for me exactly what this is, because I mean, recently colleagues sent me an article about, I think it was a jurisdiction in the US, and they started sending 
mediators to mental health problems or you know domestic disputes and stuff like that and I was like oh well actually a lot of mediators aren't really psychologists right and so I'm wondering I mean actually what's what do these psychosocial peer mediators actually know or need to know and what's the limits around what they can do or what they can cope with at least as far as Resolute is concerned yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. And I think a very important one, because I think there comes a point where you need to know where you're in this system across the care trajectory, mm -hmm. right? And so for us, we understand ourselves and we train our psychosocial peer mediators as first level of support where the overall mission is to generate awareness and mm -hmm. to be able to channel individuals who need professional psychosocial help to the right resources, right? Mm -hmm. To facilitate that, that channeling into the right hands, right? Because quite often there's not even awareness that there are so many psychosocial counseling services and mm -hmm. professional services available, for instance, in Berlin, and this awareness is just not there. So a lot of it is also recognizing initially that there is a problem right? Recognizing red flags of trauma, be it social withdrawal, be it recurrent conflicts. And I think this is where mediation comes into play because individuals who are traumatized and who have perhaps a psychiatric comorbidity or a depression mm -hmm. or anxiety are more prone to, to have the conflicts, which can result, of course, also in violent health, but they are also often more victims of this conflict. So this is a reciprocal thing where of course, your ability to resolve a potential dispute is impaired to some degree based on right the effects of this mental health issue that you may be going through. And this can, of course, be exploited in conflict. So these individuals tend to be more victims of conflict, but also reciprocally, they find it difficult to solve this conflict and are potentially are more prone to find themselves in situations of conflict, right? Which is also why there's high incidences of conflict. It's one of the reasons why there's high incidences of conflicts in refugee shelters, you know, and in some of these shelters, there's police presence almost on a daily basis, right? There are other factors, there's monotony, there's boredom when you're just confined to one place, there's cultural issues, et cetera. We don't have to go into that, but it, it's an, an important question. I think that, you know, for us, it was important to understand that mediation, a lot of mediation is ultimately psychology, right? And I think mediators who are really good are the ones that also are able to empathize and to understand the psychological ramifications of a particular particular conflict and they're able to appease both parties they're able to understand how to let other people save face how to reconcile difficult invisible psychological barriers to potential resolution and mm -hmm. here of course i mean this doesn't have to be on a very sophisticated scale but it's really teaching our mediators the and we call this the biopsychosocial concept it's an official who term right looking at the bio the psycho bio is um of and consequences of conflict and looking at mental health factors and how they manifest themselves in behavior, right? So these are people who you can ideally approach who are your own peers, who will then be able to also not just recognize that there is a problem, but also be able to sit down with you, elaborate on this problem, educate the person, making the person aware that this is treatable, first of all, it's a treatable condition. And then as a next step, and that's the important step, offering concrete information to this individual where they can get professional help, right? And so we've established actually in numerous of these shelters, peer mediation clinics, which are basically 
you know, sometimes even physical offices where the management of the shelter says, okay, you have this office here as peer mediators and individuals can come to you, your peers can come to you and resolve problems. And so the shelter's management is often very, very grateful that is in place mm -hmm. because it's obviously a lot better if peers from the same group can resolve their own disputes rather than having external mediators, even police come in. And, you know, once the conflicts have, have escalated and been exacerbated by factors to kind of be able to resolve it before it comes to them. So I think that is our mission, but I also don't want to say that these are professional, professionally trained trauma counselors. It's actually mm -hmm. quite the opposite, right? It's also not our intention to do that. Our intention is to build that initial level of awareness and to make mm -hmm. sure that these individuals who have these issues and who need help don't get lost in the system because that's the mm -hmm. fundamental problem, right? That they're not aware and that it will go unnoticed and that it will get worse and that it will lead to, you know, worst case death of despair, if societal withdrawal, addiction, financial ruin, all of these things, right? Mm. And this is what we want to prevent. So there's also a big angle of prevention in our mental aware program, which is the mental health program that I, yeah, I created. Fantastic. I love that you just at the very end there, you're like, oh, by the way, I created this program. It took a long time. Oh yeah, I did do this. So that's, you know, that, that's incredible. And so if, I guess if I can summarize what I've understood then, it's that these peer mediators are being trained really as mental mental health first aiders in a way. So they can point in the right Correct. direction, but they're not expected to be full trauma psychologists. And that is probably even inappropriate, right? So, all right, yes. good. All right. In a nutshell, yes. Sorry for the lengthy <laughs> explanation. <there. laughs> no, no, not at all. Okay, super. But I mean, you mentioned this role of, of trauma and conflict. And of course, it's not just refugees who experience trauma. There's a lot of people out there who are living with trauma and the effects of trauma on a, on a regular basis. And so this brings me then to a paper, a working paper you've just produced, which was about brain health and policymaking, a new concept to strengthen democracy. This is a lot of very fancy words in the title, and I'm very excited about the content. So just to sort of jump in, I mean, what are the links between trauma and conflict and democracy in the wider world huge question that's actually really difficult to answer <laughs> i think that's a huge question it is a very a good question because i think in part what we try to answer with this paper right and i think there's of course beyond conflict but conflict is i think one of the main reasons as to why democracies are suffering around the world and conflict is also i think of course, the main yeah consequence of, of brain ill health, if you will, it's an awkward term, but of suboptimal brain health and vice versa, it also causes... Suboptimal somehow sounds worse. <laughs> yes, it like, sounds worse somehow. You and your suboptimal yeah. brain. That's true. So, so, so I think that's why semantically you have to be always careful, I think, with the term brain health, right? Because what we want, and it's, we make this point in the paper, what we want to prevent is a kind of neurotopia where it's all about optimizing brain health and streamlining human beings to the maximum possible and creating kind of like a brave new world, if you will, mm. right? I think, you know, there, and there's always, there will always be power brokers who will try to use that to their advantage and stratifying citizens into like brain healthy, superior and suboptimal <laughs> Uh, uh, brain health people. Yeah, it's really interesting because you've just mentioned this idea of politicians stratifying people by their brain healthiness, right? But isn't that in effect what we already have in many ways? Because you tend to find that people of lower socioeconomic status 
tend to be those who are suffering as a result of mental health issues, right? Whether it's trauma or depression, anxiety, and they're also the ones who have less access to resources to help redress that. At the other end of things, you've got people, from what I understand, who are, because of lack of mental health problems, perhaps emotionally functional or more able to emotionally regulate. So they have less issues sort of getting along with people and progressing in their careers and in their workplaces as well, right? So isn't that kind of what we already have? Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent point. And I think in many ways, it comes down to this issue of brain health equity, right? Because brain health is obviously a good that we need to be able to maximize and to provide for across all levels of society and across all settings, right? And that is really, I think, a Herculean task based on what you have mentioned, right? That it's circumstances, and we call these often the negative social determinants of health or even of brain health, right? And you've mentioned a few here, you know, for instance, economic security, lack of education, stigma, discrimination against people with, for instance, neurological conditions. All of these factors ultimately are barriers to brain health. And I think it makes sense when we're throwing around the term brain health, uh, it makes sense to look into definitions. And uh, believe me, a lot of people have tried, there have even been papers on this, to to define what does brain health actually mean right and there's a, 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 a i think 2022 is a milestone year for the brain health community because who has taken a lead and launched a position paper on brain health mm. where they define brain health essentially as a state where every individual can learn maximize their full potential optimize their cognitive psychological neurophysiological and behavioral aspects and adapt to changing environments. And that is a very, very complex definition, but it has some, I think, some key elements, right? So it's a state in which everybody can learn, which is a precondition for anything, right? For brain development and for maximizing our own potential, right? And this is individual, this potential. So this is a person-centered approach and it is a life course approach, right? So so I want to live in a world where, you know, a three-year-old child can optimize and can hit their developmental milestones. And at the same time, an 80-year-old with, I don't know, multiple comorbidities is still able to enjoy quality brain health and participate in society, right? And we, of course, have huge, we're a huge step, a big step away from realizing that, right? We have huge challenges. Um, I think uh, this goes hand in hand with the burden also of neurological disease that we see. So the second big paper as to why the neuro community is so excited and why people are speaking of a neurology revolution, the second paper, in addition to the brain health paper by WHO, is the what we call IGAP, the intersectoral global action plan for epilepsy and other neurological disorders, because we have seen over the past 35 years that it has been an incredible increase in MNS disorders. MNS is kind of a term for mental, neurological, and substance use disorders, right? All disorders pertaining to the brain and nervous system, ultimately. And now, just to give you a figure, one in three people will develop a neurological condition at some point in their lifetime, right? So we're talking about the second leading cause of mortality worldwide and the first leading cause of disability worldwide. So that's a huge amount. And it doesn't even include a depression where we know that half a billion people on the planet are suffering from depression, right? So if you take all of this together, 
that is a ginormous burden of disease. It is it, it comes at a detriment to each individual, but also to societies and democracies while we're on the topic. And it is also costing trillions of dollars in lost productivity if you want to take an economic angle, which obviously in policy always makes sense because people also want to know what is feasible from a financial standpoint and where do we need to put our money at. And arguably it is this where we need to put our money at because it is hemorrhaging dollars and it is much more important from my perspective as a clinician and neuroscientist, it is causing loss of life and loss of healthy life years. Mm -hmm. And it is it is coming with huge political consequences in the specifically now in the 21st century with unprecedented challenges, as you know, that we need to deal with, right? And these many of these challenges are brain health challenges, which we refer to in the paper. Yeah, so we're very excited for policymakers to hopefully take note and to understand that arguably the brain should be central on the policy agenda because we use our brains for everything, right? And without our brains, there, there's no humanity. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's true, it's true. I mean, I'm actually really wondering that because you mentioned this range of neurological conditions and depression, what have you. And I'm wondering, before we get into the, the key findings of this paper, um, about the role of climate anxiety, which is increasingly recognized as an issue, right? And it's that sort of depression slash anxiety around climate change and what it's going to do to us and what the future can really hold. So, I mean, do you feel that that is also going to feed into this problem as climate change becomes worse? Absolutely, 100%. I think that's a fascinating point you're making there because initially it doesn't seem so obvious like what is the link between climate change and brain health and you know societies but there is a massive link if you're thinking about macro level stuff for instance whole populations being displaced as a consequence of climate change i think the figure is the highest ever the unhcr figure of people being forcibly displaced at the moment and it's not just conflicts and warfare but mm -hmm. it's also climate change right if you're thinking about famine induced by you know droughts etc that displaces whole populations and it completely shifts whole ecosystems and societal ecosystems and it causes not just disruption at population level but also at an individual level as you say with climate anxiety and a lot of people are wondering like you know do i want to live in a world where we may not see tomorrow and it may not be livable do i want to give birth to a child and put the next generation on this planet right mm -hmm. so and i think these are all valuable thoughts and it's causing a lot of disruption to people's minds in addition to this these more measurable effects that we talk about this as the we refer to this as the exposome right and this is basically all environmental exposure uh, to our bodies you know from pollutants to micro and nano plastics, the effects of which we're only beginning to understand. And this does not only happen, of course, to animals, but it also happens to human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's something like 80,000 neurotoxins, some of which have been directly linked to degenerative conditions such as Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease that we're growing up with, right? And so you have to think about this when you know the brain is developing and the brain development takes a long time it takes mm -hmm. human beings are so much dependent on their primary caregivers on their parents for such a long mm -hmm. time because the brain takes so darn long to to develop right and the mm -hmm. myelination which is basically the forming of of uh, uh, isolating sheath of myelin around the nerves to make them conduct faster, right? It's like the wiring, the cables around our neurons. They fire together, they wire together, right? They fire together and they wire together, but they only do that if this myelination properly occurs. And this occurs mm. up until your early 20s, right? To give mm. you an example. So 
So for me, and presumably also for you, it's we're already on this declining end where the myelination has finished, but it develops for a long time, right? And what if we are increasingly finding ourselves in situations where the young generation, which are really the, the leaders of the future, are growing up with this exposure, in addition to all of the other challenges that we talked about, right? So climate change, I think, has a huge uh, impact on brain health and vice versa. If we were to flip this, we must become more climate aware, right? This is something super intangible uh, as a concept. There is a super high scientific, something like 99% scientific agreement that climate change is real and is happening. Yet the societal awareness or at least the impetus to understand and to adopt a climate-friendly mindset is just not there. So how do we get there, right? How do we elicit that behavioral change in people and what can our democratic institutions do to you know not just combat the effects of climate change by agreements and you know carbon taxing etc uh, but also how to elicit that that change in behavior and that's really difficult right so it's definitely issue that should be high on the agenda fostering climate awareness and and the climate mindset and you know as you were talking as well about the youth today and beyond climate I was reading just earlier about the effects of COVID and isolation on people in their formative years and just the implications people are already seeing as far as social capability, as far as trauma, but also just as far as basic cognitive functioning, like reading, like there's children who are years behind and young adults starting to attend university who just don't have those skills. So I think that we're not in a great place for brain health, are we? <laughs> Absolutely. And this is another important point we've seen with the COVID pandemic in many ways, the, I think, various factors. One is the, the difficulty for governments and for policymakers to use scientific facts and based on that to implement policies. And it, we've seen that nations who have actually done this and who have implemented the policies have done a lot, hell lot better than other nations, right? Mm -hmm. Be it, I mean, the simple term would be the use of masks. And it's not just the US where people are struggling to do this. We've also seen this year in Germany with politicians taking very long to implement a measure that just is rooted in evidence and makes a lot of sense, but it has taken a long time to adopt to the point where it made people insecure about what is now right and what is wrong and has certainly caused a lot of excess deaths related to COVID. But also on a more individual level, we've seen the, I don't want to say lack of resilience, but it is in many ways a lack of resilience to these catastrophes, which will invariantly happen again, right? This mm -hmm. is, these pandemics, people have warned us of this. There have been position papers uh, in the past on this and analyses, and it's very likely that something like a COVID will occur and more and more frequently. And so our inability to cope with that on a societal level because of a lack of resilience I think speaks volumes to what we must do to invest into fostering resilient brains. Now, the question is, how do you foster resilient brains, right? That's a whole new field. But we may think about starting with young brains and pushing educational programs that foster character traits like resilience, like wisdom in a way, like empathy, right? So these are all, I think, issues where we need to understand how do we program our brains or how do we foster and nurture brains in a way where we can become more resilient citizens, where we can, you know, endure something like a lockdown, which is a super artificial construct, right? And it caused so much anxiety and depression and so many consequences that you've mentioned with delayed development and whole years of schooling being lost. And we can only begin to understand what the long-term sequelae of that are in the future as these children will then become the next generation of leaders. And the same goes actually for digital technology and regulating that, right? I mean, it's, I think, uh, I saw 
It must have been like a one-year-old child with, who was crying. And then instead of a pacifier, the parents would give this child an iPad, right, to watch something. And it, the, the question what? is this, I mean, yeah. yes, in many ways, that's the new digital age, right? But we don't mm. understand what are the long-term consequences to that, right? Because our brains are not necessarily attuned, as we've seen, to understanding and to processing information at that type of speed at that age. Mm. So of course, certainly we can leverage technology for positive impact. I'm all pro technology and individualized teaching and development, but we also must understand the flip side and the potential mm. harmful effect of digitalization. And so I think that is a very big topic that we're discussing in this paper, because as we've seen and bringing this back to democracy mm. is how fragile democracies can really be when a mis and disinformation are used by foreign actors to interfere in elections, in referenda, to spark and to spike and instigate partisan schism, the polarization, uh, uh, internal radicalization that destabilizes democracies. And we've seen this in the US, we've seen it in Europe with uh, elections and rise of right-wing parties, for instance, in Germany and in, in France, now in Italy, we've seen it with Brexit, we see it with other autocratic nations like China who are using technology for mass surveillance purposes, right? Mm -hmm. So we're uh, not to get too political, but I it's think, or, yes, I think you know, I always struggle a little bit with this as a primarily as a medical doctor and as a scientist because what you want to do, I think, is to remain objective because that's how you how you measure things in controlled settings. But we cannot do this in the real world. In in medicine, we can say, okay, group A takes a pill and we see what happens to the mm -hmm. outcome, and group B, which is completely randomized and matched, will not get the treatment, and then we see what happens, right? But these are artificial conditions. It works for randomized controlled trials. It doesn't work in the real world where we rely on what we call natural experiments. You're looking at what is going on. To give you an example, for instance, we know that sugary beverages are bad for the body and certainly also for the brain and they cause diabetes and obesity and all sorts of bad things that we don't want to happen. So how do you disincentivize people from drinking sugary drinks? Well, you put into place a sugar tax, right? Which is the ultimate policy measure to say, well, we're going to just make them, those drinks more expensive. And now mm -hmm. there is a 20% sugar tax. So people have done this, for instance, in the UK or in Mexico. And then we measure, does this actually reduce sugar consumption, which we know is bad for the body and for the brain, right? But we can only kind of compare what was the baseline of sugary drinks consumption before this tax and what happens after the tax? And that's our natural experiments. And as you know, there are so many variables that will influence that behavior. And maybe people say, well, now I don't have sugary drinks anymore. Now I'm going to, I don't know, eat more chocolate or the food industry will say, well, now we're going to repackage and reformulate our products, right? So yeah. there's so many variables that we can't control. Mm -hmm. And it makes it, I think, very difficult to also push policymakers to say, hey, you need to invest into brain health because they mm -hmm. want to see results, right? They want to be able to say, well, this policy has worked. This policy has mm -hmm. been a success. But for that, we must understand how do we in the first place measure brain health? That, that in itself is an incredibly complex mm -hmm. undertaking to measure these different levels of brain health from just physiological health to what we talked about, Laura, like resilience and wisdom and fostering information literacy. So that in itself is very complex. And then the second point being, how do you measure success of democracies, right? That's also not <laughs> so easy. Of course, we know it's, yeah, it's, oh God, yeah. it's safeguarding human rights. It's all of these things. It's effective governance. It's checks and balances. We know mm -hmm. these things, but still, as a political scientist, you know that that's also a very disputed and difficult field, right? So very to much. put it simply, it's a very complex undertaking 
But I hope that with this paper, at least some policymakers will take notice that we should try to solve and tackle these 21st century challenges by investing more into brain health. That's, I think, the underlying key message. And hopefully this can spark a field where we can do these natural experiments and build on, uh, on this initial proposition. Great. And so just to break it down even more, what are the concrete implications of poor brain health for democracy? I mean, even with the problems with defining, like what are the actual issues? Yes. So, so there are a lot of issues, obviously, to break down. One that comes to mind immediately is despair and hopelessness, right? There is a lot of, and there's a whole think tank actually at the Brookings Institution led by Carol Graham, who has done wonderful work in this field to analyze, okay, what is actually happening? Of course, this is kind of in the based in the US, but it applies to many societies. Why is, uh, for instance, the, you know, the, the, this Trump phenomenon happening? Why did this happen? And how is society shifting? And why do we have something like U.S. life expectancy being on the decline, mm. right? I mean, what, what is driving that? And the answer is it's deaths of despair. By, and death of the despair is essentially suicide and deaths by alcohol and drug poisoning, mm. right? And then you have to understand, you have to think about what drives individuals to, to these extreme positions and clearly it comes down to to brain health right it comes down to the, their opportunities or actually the lack of opportunities it becomes uh, it comes down to having a feeling of uh, despair which means essentially being the plight of many who are ambivalent as to whether they live or die right i mean that's a very extreme position but we have uh, we also refer to these i think during these elections and when Trump was elected, the forgotten men and women, it was mm -hmm. used to be that, that that phrase, who have voted on these extreme positions. And it is actually also a failure of society collectively to include these individuals into civic participation, because one of the pillars of democracy that we haven't mentioned and talked about yet, and I think it's a pillar that often gets ignored, is civic participation. Right, because how do you ensure checks and balances? How do you make sure that the right candidates are elected? How do you make sure that the right positions are being advocated for? It is mm -hmm. essentially in, in functional democracies, the people who are doing that on a local, on a communal level and who are taking part in dialogue. And Helen and I have spoken about this dialogue and we're trying to, we're big proponents of dialogue work because this is how you resolve issues and this is how you find common ground, even across party lines. And so I think there is a, an overall lack of civic participation. And there are many factors for this. One of them is, of course, brain ill health. Other factors are digitalization, where, of course, we live more and more in a digitalized world, and we tend to look more on a phone and respond via text and engaging in actual dialogue, right? So then there are many elements that lead to this disengagement. But this is, of course, one of the factors, despair, not just lowering average years life expectancy, but also causing the destabilization and extreme polarization, because such individuals are potentially more prone to adopt these extremely polarized positions. We know mm -hmm. that social media is amplifying that hugely because our attention. And I, I hope that by now everyone has understood that we are the product and that attention is being monetized in these systems. Uh, so that is taken away. Of course, it is feed, feeding us only reinforcing positions uh, that then push us to the extreme because there is a lack of genuine real world dialogue. And often, mm -hmm. as you know, as a as a political scientist and mediator, that, that dialogue is very much a cornerstone of resolving anything and finding a common ground. But if we don't even have this dialogue to begin with, then I think we're in for 
for big troubles. So this is one position by which democracies are being destabilized. It is internal destabilization through polarization, through extremism. Think about cyber recruiting, you know, from all kinds of extremist spectra, which is increasingly happening to susceptible individuals. But it's also, ironically, the state of the brain, right? So mm -hmm. unhealthy brains are more or stressed brains that have gone through through a lot mentally or physically are more prone to actually buy into misinformation. So there's a very interesting ongoing area of research that we're more susceptible to simplistic populist messaging than seeing the truth, because the truth, let's face it, quite often it's very complex and multifaceted and difficult and boring, right? Mm -hmm. People want so to boring. see the exciting, emotionally appealing <laughs> yeah. stuff, right? And yeah, and that's that makes it very difficult to convince people. And there are whole fields actually emerging now by WHO. There is a field of infodemiology emerging mm -hmm. after this whole COVID disinformation mess happened. The WHO mm -hmm. stepped up to say, okay, we need to create a whole new field to understand mm -hmm. how can we shield our citizens? How can sh citizens shield themselves from disinformation, which is essentially targeted misinformation? And there are various techniques from pre-bunking, preemptively to debunking, to, mm -hmm. to even inoculation, which is sort of vaccine, cognitive vaccination, where mm -hmm. you present someone with a story that is essentially fake news, and yeah. you make them realize that it's fake, and you prime them to be able to better understand what is fake and what is real, because we do live, unfortunately, in this both truth error, where we have, as we have famously heard, alternative facts, and, and we must deal with this as citizens, right? We have so many things to deal with, and on top of that, where do we get our information? from and what is credible anymore and what isn't and what does our truth or fiction look like that is incredibly mm. difficult for the human brain to discern and it gets more and more complicated with as we're talking about uh, the web 3.0 and metaverse mm. so we could sit yeah. here and talk all day about this I think. <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> it's like a 13 hour <laughs> podcast if not longer yes. yeah, absolutely and so, so then I will ask you just one final question then based on this paper you just produced about brain health and policy making if you had a magic wand and you could make all the governments in the world do one thing to assist brain health and therefore democracy, we're going to actually, we're going to limit this to democratic governments in the world. The other ones might not be so interested in democracy. What, what would you do with that magic wand? What would be the one thing you would do? Well, I think that's, a, that's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't think there is a magic uh, bullet approach to solving all of these questions. I think what I would want to see is leveraging insights that we have from neuroscience now. And it's true that it has taken the field hundreds of years to get to this point, but we're now at the point where we're starting to understand the complexity of the human brain, right? Which is difficult because we have a hundred, a hundred billion neurons and a hundred trillion synaptic connections. So exceeding the number of numbers of stars in the universe. So how are you going to understand fully, you know, what the, what nuanced interventions look like on the brain? It is very difficult, but to understand that we are on the way to do that and that we have uh, medical and neuroscientific insights which should not just sit in, in journals and somewhere on a bookshelf. We need to actually translate these into informing our policies. And this has been so under leveraged. And for me, the magic bullet, my personal approach, if there was one thing, I would start with education. Because, of course, as we've talked about, we, we need to bring up the next generation of leaders who will solve all of these difficult issues and the mess that we find ourselves in, frankly, right now. 
And it is this realization that each and every one of us has an individual brain that can maximize its own potential. But in order to do that, we need to provide external stimuli and learning environments that are favorable to that. And it's not just kind of learning and cognitive, hard cognitive skills. So not just hard brain skills, but it's also uh, values. And that's one aspect I think that we didn't touch on and that I was very keen to embed into this paper is the concept of dignity neuroscience. And this was proposed by Tara White and Megan Gonsalves at Brown University, a fascinating paper where they've essentially shown that human dignity and human rights for autonomy, self-determination, unconditional worth, et cetera, that these rights are fundamentally nested in the emergent properties of the human brain. And I think if we can take these, if we can take human dignity as a moral compass for fostering brain health at a global scale and for brain health directed policymaking, then we're on a very good road. And this comes back to, to character elements, or you could even call these virtues, right, such as resilience or empathy, compassion, the capacity for dialogue. These are all, I think, character traits that, that unite us across partisan lines. And we need to be able to establish common ground on those, right? Uh, because otherwise, when we get siloed and we have the political lens on and we have our partisan positions, this is when downstream conflicts, as you well know, happen and exacerbate. And this is, the, I think, the antidote to that is to really foster these common dignity principles that each and every one of us has. And these principles help us also to deal with challenging issues we haven't spoken yet about. And I think this would be a whole other podcast about... <laughs> The dual use of neurotechnology, and yesterday we heard Elon Musk and Neuralink talking about implantation of brain chips to restore vision and to help with spinal cord injury. But make no mistake, I think these technologies, they're first going to be medical, but I think the end game, as has been pointed out, is to keep up with AI, right, and to create a brain-computer interface technology so powerful to be able to augment bandwidth and to be able to implement and integrate AI in our processes. And this technology, of course, has to be regulated, right? And we're mm -hmm. so far behind in regulating mm -hmm. that technology and in even understanding it. And policymakers are very far behind on that. I think all seen Mark Zuckerberg's hearing with Facebook, this the Senate hearing where you could really see this intergenerational clash between policymakers who do not even know how to log into Facebook yeah. and what Facebook is actually doing and Meta is doing behind the scenes, right? So we've seen also the danger of this. And clearly these companies, of course, they've connected people. Of course, you can apply BCI's brain computer interface for, for medical purposes and for good in the world, but it also needs a regulatory framework and it needs a global regulatory framework. And I think Coming back to dignity in neuroscience and human dignity as a fundamental principle can help us as a kind of leitmotiv and moral compass to inform some of these decisions. So those would be my maybe my two, if you allow, things is to invest into education and character virtues and to take a human dignity approach to some of these very, very ethically, highly challenging innovations and yeah, advancements for humanity. Well, I feel like you did the magic wand equivalent of using the third wish for a wish for three more wishes. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was very interesting. And it looks, Sebastian, I feel like we could talk all day, but I know you have things to do. So I won't trap you, but I might have to have you back in future. But in the meantime, for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? 
So they can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I'm fairly active. And I also have a, a personal website where some of my research is accessible, or actually I'm trying to make it available as, as much as possible. Obviously, their paywalls and whatnot with science, <laughs> it's another issue for another talk. But that's sfwinter.com. It's the best Friedrich, sfwinter.com. Yeah. And thank you so much, Laura, once again, for this opportunity. You really enjoyed our chat and, and dialogue and it's, it's always very inspirational to, to have a sparing partner to discuss these <laughs> issues because there's so much work to be done and we're really in, in embryonic stages and taking baby steps but I hope that it's you know the right push for the field absolutely no well thank you so much again Sebastian and for everyone else until next time this is Laura May with the conflict team podcast from mediate.com this podcast has been brought to you by mediate.com for more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.